on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. The journey of soul initiation, as I've come to understand it, is a multi-year process that can't even start until we're in a certain stage of life that most contemporary people never reach. But once we do reach that stage, we go through this process of initiation that results in what I call visionary artisans of cultural evolution. These are people who've had visions of what their place in the world is. And um, by embodying that, by finding a way to carry that gift to their people, they are helping their culture evolve. What does it mean to be a man today? The toxic patterns of masculinity are being challenged, and new pathways are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric uncertainty, how might we look to the old mythologies for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculinities. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Bill Plotkin, a depth psychologist, wilderness guide, and founder of Western Colorado's Animus Valley Institute. Bill has led thousands of women and men through nature-based initiatory passages and is the author of numerous books, including Soulcraft, Nature in the Human Soul, and Wild Mind. In our conversation today, we discuss his recent book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, which distills decades of his insights into human development and the mythopoetic relationship between psychology and ecology. We explore the five phases of what he calls the descent to soul, including preparation, dissolution, soul encounter, metamorphosis, and enactment. We compare his model and the significant differences between Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, along with the challenges of navigating through each stage of development. And finally, Bill names the blessing and the burden it is to take on one's own unique ecological niche, and how this invites us to become visionary artisans of cultural evolution. Before we begin, I wish to let you know about the Mythic Masculine Network. It's an online community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. Each week, you can attend online councils, connect with others in our dedicated lodges, and dive deeper into the themes explored in this podcast. Head over to themythicmasculine.com slash network and learn more. And now, enjoy my conversation with Bill Plotkin. Welcome, Bill, to the show. Thanks, Ian. Great to be with you. Appreciate the invitation. To begin, I'd love to ask uh, for you to share a little of where you are in this moment, geographically, spiritually, emotionally. I'm in southwest Colorado on the um, eastern side of the Animus Valley, hence the name of our institute, Animus Valley Institute. And um, it's as everybody knows, who knows when this was recorded, we're in a, a time of great change and crisis, not only in this country, but everywhere in the world. And so, um, yes, I'm stirred up spiritually. I see it as a dangerous opportunity. That's been um, 
unfolding and um, delivering us to this moment and has probably been unfolding for thousands of years. So it's, it's an exciting time to, to be alive, for sure. I'm excited to have you here on the show as I've been hearing about your work for a number of years now. Um, I think initially from uh, a friend who's become a very dear collaborator, uh, but who was deeply inspired by, I think it was your first book, uh, Soulcraft, uh, which inspired him actually to go out to the desert and to, you know, try a vision fast um, in, in, you know, I think the way that had been described in the book, uh, but also for him to do it largely alone and uh, maybe recklessly. And, uh, and yet at the same time, it really did put him on a path that, that, you know, have since has really defined his life. And, and luckily he's found other mentors and elders and all the rest. But um, certainly it was something very powerful that you, you spoke to um, in, in that book and your work. And, you know, before we leap into uh, what is your latest book, uh, Journey of Soul Initiation, I would love to just have a little bit more of your own story of, you know, what, um, what drew you into this soul's path, which, you know, in your book, I, I picked up, uh, you, you see yourself largely as a cocoon weaver. And uh, I would love to just, you know, hear some of that journey, knowing that it's a very long and, and rich one. Yeah, how to summarize such a complex journey. I'll start by saying that um, probably like most children, I asked at a certain point, I was asking really big questions about life. I think all humans are born with a spiritual dimension. And we, we wonder about what is this thing we've been born into? And um, so I, I would, like most children, probably I asked questions like, um, who was I before I was born? Where did I come from? What is it to be human? Why was I born to this family? Um, what does it mean to be fully human? Why do we die? What is death? All those questions. Um, and I believe that most contemporary humans tend to lose that uh, that consciousness, that that focus after a while because of the nature of our contemporary societies. But for some reason, I didn't. Um, I think, you know, part of it is because um, I was and am a, a very introverted person. And um, I grew up on the edge of a uh, suburb in New England. And the forest was right there. And I spent a lot of my childhood in, in the forest in relatively wild places. And I, I think that kept my my innate wondering about the world and about life intact. So um, as I got into my later teens, I was starting to explore uh, spiritual um, disciplines of various sort because they, the religion I grew up in, which is Judaism, uh, never spoke to me whatsoever. It was not of any help in any of my questions, um, at least my exposure to Judaism at that time. And uh, so I began to explore other spiritualities there in the early 70s that were available, such as you know, Buddhism, Sufism, various yogas, and so on. And uh, learned a whole lot. Uh, and also from the, uh, the spiritual discipline of psychedelics, that was a really important piece of my development. Mm. And, um, but, but the deepest questions I had weren't being answered by any of these for me. 
So um, it was sometime in my, what, late 20s, um, I discovered the work of Stephen Foster and Meredith Little of the School of Lost Borders in California, who were busy reintroducing to the Western world the pan-cultural vision fast. And I corresponded with them. They were very gracious with me. We wrote letters back and forth. And uh, it was this was in 1978 or nine, And they sent me an early copy of their handbook. And I took myself out somewhat rashly um, out into the wilds of the Colorado mountains, uh, tree line. Uh, it was in actually 1980 in the early fall, early September. And um, just with the guidance of Stephen and Meredith's guidebook, I fasted for four days and nights alone. I took myself out there alone and um, had a variety of experiences there, but it, that included my first soul encounter. And I know we're going to be talking about what I mean by soul and soul encounter, but um, on this one, I had a, uh, an interaction with a, a yellow butterfly. Basically, this is one of the fourth day of my fast when um, my consciousness had shifted in such a way that I felt it was easy to communicate in both directions with other than human beings. So this butterfly uh, came by and uh, flew right to me. And actually her wing touched the left side of my face. And as she went by, I heard her say, cocoon weaver. And um, I thought that was interesting. It wasn't particularly any more interesting than the other things that were happening in that meadow, which were quite a, a lot of things like the little community of pikas were gathering watercress for their, their upcoming winter. Um, but um, within maybe a half a minute of that experience with the butterfly, um, something opened up in my belly and a really strong emotion came through and of uh, terror and joy. And I realized I'd just been shown something about what my place in the earth community is. I didn't understand what it meant, um, but something about weaving cocoons. And over the next several years, I just began to learn what that was and have really been ever since. You touched upon the um, meeting with Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, yeah. uh, or encountering their work, and and I myself as well have read the handbook, and uh, have have also orbited somewhat. Um, I think some of their uh, contemporaries as well, the guides that have you know offered that uh, those rites of passage. I myself as well am in a four year cycle of a, of a wilderness fast sequence, and so I know somewhat of of what that is. Um, and of course, they're always very different in the rest. And and I was really intrigued um, in reading your work that you really have a pretty clear distinction actually between uh, a rite of passage and a, a journey of soul initiation. Yes. Actually. And you know, perhaps I would love to begin to you know open up that those distinctions because I actually think they're they're really they're very intriguing to me as I haven't really encountered them uh, with such level of detail before. Well, yes, I was taught that uh, a vision fast was a kind of rite of passage, and it can be, um, but it never was for me. Um, and the work we do at Animus Valley Institute is almost never involves rites of passage. Um, if it does, it's kind of incidental. Um, not that rites of passage are insignificant at all, but the journey of soul initiation, as I've come to understand it, is a multi-year process um, that 
that can't even start until we're in a certain stage of life that most contemporary people never reach. And, but once we do reach that stage, um, we go through this process of initiation that results in what I call visionary artisans of cultural evolution. It's a bit of a mouthful, visionary artisans of cultural evolution. These are people who've had visions and of what their place in the world is. Again, my example was cocoon weaving. And um, by embodying that, by finding a way to carry that gift to their people, um, they are helping their culture evolve. I like using that phrase, visionary artisan of cultural um, evolution, because if I didn't use that phrase, I would have to just say true adulthood. And we got to be careful with the word adulthood because how it's misused and misunderstood in our contemporary world that we, you know, I always think when people say adulthood, my first association is Peter Pan who said, I'm going to have nothing to do with it. I'm out of here. I'm going to never, never land. And I remember what it was like when I was in, in my early teens and I looked around uh, at my parents, my beloved parents and teachers and um, religious uh, professionals and so on and, and politicians, yeah, and thought, whoa, if this is adulthood, something's really wrong and I don't want any part of it. I'm with Peter Pan on that one. But um, I believe that true adulthood is a very exciting, um, mystical, challenging adventure. And if Peter Pan knew about it, he would definitely sign up for it. Um, but anyway, that's, that's a brief introduction. Oh, let me say just a bit more to your question. Um, a rite of passage, as I understand it, is a, a ritual that supports a person uh, going through some kind of psycho-spiritual or social passage. And one kind of rite of passage marks or celebrates a passage from one life stage to another. Um, we don't have that many true rites of passage in that sense in our culture because people don't get very far in the stages of life. It's a, a disturbing thing to have to say and to hear. But a second kind of rite of passage helps us move from one social role or status to another. And there's lots and lots of those kinds of rites of passage. And those kinds of rites even actually make the passage happen. Like, for example, a marriage ceremony. Um, before that ceremony, you are single. Afterwards, you are married. And the ceremony made it happen. But with what I consider the true passages, which are um, from one stage of life to another, the rite of passage is not, does not make it happen, is not meant to make it happen. It has a different function. And the function is to support um, a person and their community when they move from one stage of life to the, another, because that is really difficult and challenging for the individual, often for the family and the community. And the rite of passage um, is a way of supporting a person to uh, adjust to this new stage that they've just gotten into and they've never experienced before. And it's also letting the community know, hey, this person has just gone through this huge shift and they could use some support. And by the way, it's also good for everybody to know that you've got someone in the community now who's in this new stage. Okay, so I hope that helps with rites of passage. And again, a the journey of soul initiation is an initiatory process. It's, it's several years long. You can get stuck in the middle of it. Um, it 
goes much faster um, if you have guides, but and so on. Okay, so there's the difference. Mm. Thanks for that. You have a map of, I think it's it's the journey or the development of of either the psyche or the stages of human development um, that I found really intriguing. Which you know, I would love if you actually could share a little bit actually of the first few because I think that's a bit what you mean as well when you say there's actually not many people reach the stage where they can even enter into the journey of soul initiation. And I found it really helpful actually to hear about you know from birth. It's like what stage are you in, yeah. and like what's your task you know for that right. time. I myself have a I have a young son who's uh, just over two now as well, and so it's actually really interesting to me to be like, oh, I see him you know, kind of acting out those stages and, and then, you know, what was uh, sort of early adolescence. And, you know, that was really helpful to me to to see that actually mapped out. And I'd just love for you to speak about those early stages. The um, challenge is always doing it briefly. I'll do my best. Um, so background is I'm a psychologist, trained as a psychologist. And as I began to doing this um, wilderness-based Work, initiatory work with people back in 1981 was when I started. Um, I was noticing things about people's development that didn't fit any of the development models I had studied as a grad student. Um, so I started developing my own and I used the, uh, the template, the universally used template of the natural world to develop a model. And I didn't know of any Western, I still don't know any Western developmental models that use that template. Although many indigenous people use that template, of course. And even if we go far enough back in our own ancestry, went back when we were indigenous ourselves, we, we can find examples. Okay, so in the, the template is um, the four cardinal directions, what we experience in the four directions, but also the four times of day, sunrise, noon, sunset, midnight, and uh, the four seasons. They're really all the same template. Okay, so um, based on that template, um, I, over some years, I developed this model of eight stages of life that we're meant to go through. I call them the eco-centric or the soul-centric uh, stages. And there's two of childhood, two of adolescence, two of adult, two of elderhood. And... Um, each of the stages has two developmental tasks. I didn't didn't think I was gonna it was gonna end up that way, but it just did end, end up that way. I, the question I was asking: What are the developmental tasks of each stage? And it's the what helps a person move through a stage and eventually go through the passage to the next stage is success with those developmental tasks. We, no one ever completes the task of any stage, but it's working on the task that at some point, the way I like to say it is mystery says, okay, this person has achieved enough success with these tasks. And so we're going to um, toss them over into the next stage. So, um, and so there's two tasks of each stage. One is what we would call, what I call culture oriented. And the other one is nature oriented. And in the Western world, we don't support people very deeply to address either task of any stage. That's a problem. And, um, and it's especially the nature-oriented task, that's not a surprise, that we neglect or even suppress. Just one quick example in the second stage of childhood, which you could also call middle childhood, 
roughly age, for most people, age four to 12 or so. Um, the nature-based task is learning the enchantment of the natural world, which is to say, coming to find oneself fully at home with the other than human world, celebrating and cultivating one's kinship with all other kinds of beings, other species, habitats. And as we all know, everyone's listening to this knows that we've lost a lot of that over the last several hundred years, especially over the last maybe 40. Um, and that's an essential task because if we don't develop our capacity to feel fully at home in the larger world, there's going to be this sense of anxiety or restlessness right at the very core of our psyche. And no matter how well we're loved by other humans and no matter how tight of a social circle we have, there's going to still be this, this feeling inside that we can't shake that I don't, I don't say if I don't really belong here, I'm not really at home. And um, that's, that's a core trouble of the, the heart of most everybody alive now. You speak of this necessity of, uh, I think it was called a eco awakening. Yes. Which, you know, tends to happen. I mean, at least I think in, you know, modern contemporary culture, if it does happen, tends to happen in some sense way later than it would happen if it was a culture that was still connected, as you say, to, you know, nature ways and, and, and the intelligence in this kinship. And I found that actually really uh, true in that, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, not a lot of younger people are truly are allowed to develop that nature-based, you know, relationship and that sense of being at home in nature. And so it makes sense to me that I also tracked a feeling of almost like, yeah, a needing to like correct at, at a later time in my life, you know, with the sense of like, well, wait a second. And, and you know, I can even track, uh, maybe it's a cliche to say, but an experience of Burning Man, you know, about 10 years ago, which was, you know, uh, there were some psychedelics involved and, and all the rest, but in some ways it really felt like a, a kind of awakening to, to, to it really was a encounter with death actually, because for me, uh, I was brought to the temple uh, at Burning Man, which you might be aware of, is really like the, the place of grief, the palace of grief. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I was a, a temple guardian for a few years actually at the temple and I ended up making a film about what the temple guardians do. But there was something in, in me when I finally feel like I got the temple that just like blasted me completely open. And, and really what I think I saw was my own death. Or, or maybe I could say my own participation in this, you know, caravan of life and death. Mm -hmm. And it really wrecked me in a way that I'd never experienced before. But at the same time, it kind of awakened a sense of participation and a sense of purpose that, you know, hearing your description, I'm not saying this is exactly what you're talking about, but at least for me, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that, that felt like it it corresponded in some ways to something that may have needed to happen sooner, could have happened sooner, um, but it really was a cultural failing that, you know, I didn't get, and I see so many others that don't get to um, have that built in, you know, to their experience growing up. And so, so that autocorrect feels like it, it needs to happen later in life. Yeah. Before I really respond, can I um, draw you out just a little bit more about that, that experience in the temple what did it have to do with your relationship with the other than human world? Because I think mm. if I heard you right, you were implying that it did. Yeah, I would just say that it it kind of brought me to maybe a larger than human centric narrative. You know, even though the 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 temple itself, you know, often is humans, you know, putting their grief and their sorrow and their you know ritual participation as well. But for me, it sort of opened up almost like the portal to a much bigger encounter with with death or with the goddess of 
you know, life and death. And so in that sense, it kind of, it did obliterate a human-centric narrow specificity, yes. I suppose, for me <clears throat> and, and opened me in ways, yeah, which, I mean, I'm still, you know, unpacking. Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, there's a few different threads we could pull here. Um, one is about, again, what I call eco-awakening, which obviously is short for ecological awakening. And you were saying um, that it happens later in a contemporary society than it would in a healthier nature-based society. Well, I believe it's it's even more extreme than that, that it never happens for people in nature-based cultures because they never they don't need it. They never lose their experience a kinship with the, the greater earth community. Um, so in some ways it's a, um, it's, it's something um, that we only find in contemporary cultures, eco, a need for it. So in a healthy nature-based culture, children are raised in such a way that they, they, they don't lose their innate uh, sense of kinship with, with all other things. Like when we, like when you think of your, your two-year-old son, um, he, probably you know will speak to birds and trees and leaves and so on um, it's just part of being naturally human um, and our contemporary societies educational systems and so on tend to suppress that so um, and there are people uh, many people have met a minority who have never lost that and they never had to go through ecological awakening and I believe that's pretty much true about myself that and again, it's because of my, my shyness. And I had a fairly healthy family by contemporary standards, which is a low bar. It was also, you know, traumatic the way growing up, the way it is for most people. And in a lot of ways, I escaped that by going out into the forest. And so I never lost that, that connection. And um, one of the things I found very interesting is that, you know, I've been guiding um, these missionary processes, journeys for 40 years now. And in the early years, they were primarily vision fasts. Since then, there's many, many other formats we use. But um, one thing I noticed those early years in guiding uh, vision fast is that only about 20% or 25% of the people who came uh, to participate ended up having what I called soul encounters. They have that, that deep and encounter with their unique place in the greater earth community, like I did uh, when I had the cocoon weaver encounter. Um, and so I started, I was a psychologist, even a research psychologist at one time. So I started interviewing all of these people. And the main commonality between all of them is that they all had childhoods in which they never lost their connection with the, the wilder world. But that's not true for most contemporary people. So at some point, if we're lucky, maybe in our 20s, 30s, 40s, could happen even later, we have an experience in which um, it's a somatic experience, not primarily intellectual at all. I mean, later we put words to it, but it's a somatic experience that, that you could translate by saying, I, I've, I've just I have just had this experience that I'm as wild and as natural as anything else, and that I have a kinship with everything. And some people say it by um, the image that there was a, a curtain or an invisible wall between me and the rest of the world, and I didn't know it was there until that day that it shattered. And then I knew it had always been there. 
and I, and I felt at, I began to feel more at home than I ever have before. So that's ecological awakening. It's, a, it's an essential passage. It is a passage from what I call egocentric early adolescence to echocentric early adolescence. Early adolescence does not re- refer to our early teen years. It's a, it's a psychological stage that begins after puberty. And for most contemporary humans, it never ends. It goes on for the rest of their lives. But at eco-awakening, we enter a healthier early adolescence that I call the oasis. Um, now, the experience you had, Ian, in the temple, uh, it could have been a kind of ecological awakening, but it also, and I'm just making guesses, even if it's not true for you, at least I'll introduce another idea here. Um, it, it could have been the beginning of a descent to soul, um, which the, and one of the early phases, phase two actually, is what we call dissolution. And during dissolution, our former understanding of what it is to have a human identity and a former understanding of what the world is just crumbles. It collapses. It's like the rug come, is, is uh, pulled out from underneath psycho-spiritual rug pulled out from underneath our feet. And it often involves an encounter with death. And, but it's also an, um, an encounter with life because uh, it's a sense that, um, that I'm here not just to, create a comfortable social role and develop a career. I've actually was brought here to do something important before I die. And, uh, and often there's a lot of grief that comes up. But in my dissolution experience, I'm not going to go into any details now unless you ask, but there was this immense combination of two emotions that came up simultaneously. And I, this is a pattern that I hear all of, I hear regularly. And the two emotions are grief and hope. Grief that what I thought the world was and what I thought it was to be human is, wasn't true. And there's hope that I can begin this journey now and um, find a trail that will allow me to gift the world in only the way that I can. Mm. I mean, that does ring true. I'll just say in, in my experience as well. I will say that was actually... That encounter happened on the cusp of my marriage ending. Wow. Uh, which happened yeah. almost immediately after that, you know, for different circumstances. But, uh, and I felt deeply into a descent, you know, yeah. into dissolution of who I was, who I thought I was, you know, into the underworld of, of, you know, essentially leaving the home that I had, you know, that we shared, the two of us. Um, and, you know, having a soul encounter, maybe this is also what a soul encounter might be that, through that process as well, I was given a name, which is somewhat common at Burning Man. You know, you get names, nicknames in this, but I won't show the story of how I was entered into some kind of quirky little ritual that, you know, these these this one camp was offering. But they, I did go through a process where they bestowed upon me uh, a name, which is which is kept in the sense of, you know, and, and hearing your definition of, um, in terms of enacting that gift to bring to the world, you know, has continued to ring true in some ways. Um, but the name is Vision Weaver. Oh, mm-hmm. which for me was about weaving the visions of the possible, you know, of the possible world. And, you know, as a filmmaker for all that time since, and even, you know, this podcast and stories and the rest, I do feel like really that's, that seems the heart of it is like weaving, weaving the possible, you know, weaving these visions. So it's just, you know, it was interesting to map this journey that you've created. And I don't want to get too far ahead just to 
sort of miss the stages too, because I do feel they're important for the listener to to be able to grasp on um, that the now that we're talking of journey of soul initiation as distinct from rite of passage, um, the first stage I understand is preparation. I actually use the word phase phases um, just so people don't confuse it with um, the life stages. So you know, and their phases are actually of the descent to soul. The book, my new book, is really about the descent to soul. I wanted to call it that, and my very wise editor said, um, "If you have descent in the title, people will think it's a journey to hell, and they won't want to, they won't <laughs> want to buy it." And I don't know if I entirely buy her reasoning, but um, she's a professional. So um, we use the other title, "Journey of Soul Initiation," which is, which is, it's essentially what happens through. Uh, it corresponds to an entire stage of life, namely what I consider late adolescence, which I call the cocoon, not surprisingly. Um, and during the cocoon, the core adventure is a descent to soul. That's something that happens during the journey of soul initiation. And you can have one or more descents in, uh, during the journey of soul initiation, and you can have one or more after the journey but not, it doesn't happen. We're not psycho-spiritually prepared for that experience before the cocoon. Okay, so the descent to soul is what has five phases. And um, the first one, yes, is preparation. Did you want me to go through just like, listen to Yeah, please, them. that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, so it's preparation. A second phase is dissolution. Then soul encounter. Fourth phase is metamorphosis, and the fifth is enactment. And there's two analogies I use to help people understand that, um, be able to like um, get it quicker. And one is like um, what I call Soul Canyon. The other one is um, the experience of a caterpillar in a cocoon. But in Soul Canyon, if you imagine you're you're walking along. Uh, a vast plain and you're walking towards like the grand Canyon and uh, that walking along the plain is preparation. Then when you get to the edge of the Canyon, you look down and you, and you, and you get vertigo and you go, Oh my God, I'm going down there. It's like, it looks like I'll just fall to my death, which is correct. It's psycho spiritually. And so the second phase is dissolution and that's the actual descent down into the Canyon and during dissolution, our early adolescent identity begins to crumble. It's shamanically, you would call it a dismemberment experience. And it's the unraveling of who we thought we were and what we thought the world was. And once we reach the bottom, we have the soul encounter phase. And that's when we have a glimpse of soul. And I don't know if I've said it yet with you, but for me, soul is an ecological concept, not a psychological one or a spiritual one, certainly not a religious one. What I mean by soul is a thing's unique niche in the greater earth community. So for short, unique echo niche. So, and when we have a glimpse of that as humans, it's not a literal description of an ecological niche because any ecological niche is really hard to describe because niches are a set of relationships. It's basically the relationships that a, an individual thing has with everything else in its ecosystem. That's impossible to actually describe. 
Um, but if we say something like, well, a fox, you know, people have some sense of what place a fox has in an ecosystem. Um, so for us humans, the way we come to understand it is through metaphor. So a soul encounter experience is actually the receiving of a metaphor that poetically gives our conscious self some sense of what is my place in the greater earth community. Again, mine was cocoon weaving. So my partner, Janine Marie Haugen and I, several years ago, we were looking for a good word for that, that kind of experience. And we called it mythopoetic identity. That every human during a soul encounter has an ex a glimpse of mythopoetic identity, which gives our conscious self a kind of a semantic feeling for what our unique echo niche is. Okay, so that's the soul encounter phase. And the fourth phase is climbing up the other side, the wall on the other side of the canyon, and that's called metamorphosis. And it's where the actual reshaping happens. What gets reshaped? It's not our bodies so much, or even at all. It's the ego is what gets reshaped. And the ego is being uh, transformed from an adolescent ego, which understands itself as an agent for itself and an agent for its social role and so forth, to an adult ego, which understands itself as an agent for soul, which is the same thing as an agent for the more than human world. So that metamorphosis stage is, phase rather is absolutely essential. And then we reach the top of the, uh, Kenyan wall, and then is this other vast plain on the other side, and um, and we take that the trail there back to our village, and that's the enactment phase, where we begin to do our best with whatever resources we have to embody our mythopoetic identity for our people, and this is even before we actually deliver, uh, sorry, develop and cultivate a um a, an, a true art or discipline what I call a delivery system for soul. Okay, so there's the five phases. You draw a clear distinction as well between Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. I read it in the appendix actually of your yeah. book that you, 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 know, you really wanted to actually kind of, you know, because some people hearing this may say, oh, that's pretty much like the hero's journey, right? Uh, yeah. But I would love for you to, to again, maybe, maybe unpack actually the distinctions as well between this uh, journey of the soul initiation and or the, dis the dis descent of the soul and the hero's Yeah, journey. it is very different. Um, the general uh, pattern here is that, you know, being trained as a psychologist and having been a student through books of Joseph Campbell's and many other people, um, I had these certain frameworks and models about how life works. And I thought, well, these are very progressive models. Um, but it turned out most of them ended up not being able to describe or support the, the journey. Um, so this is one of those examples. Um, uh, probably most people are familiar with Joseph Campbell's, um, phrase of the hero's journey. It's one of his first books. Maybe it's his first book called uh, the hero with a thousand faces. And, uh, he was of course, this extraordinarily accomplished mythologist and he had studied, uh, sacred stories, which is say myths from all over the world and said, they're basically telling all the same story. They're telling the same story. And um, it's the story of the hero. And um, he used a template 
of of rites of passage for his um, model. And there's three phases. Um, I'd have to look at my notes here. I always forget exactly the words he used. But the more important point is that, um, as I've already mentioned, the journey of soul initiation and also the descent of soul are not rites of passage. And they're not hero's journeys um, in the sense that um, the way Campbell described the outcome of a hero's journey was essentially an upper world, what I would call an upper world experience. It's a transcendent experience. And he uses various, various phrases for mythology, like atonement with the father, or the marriage with the mother goddess, or the theft of a boon to bring to your people. And none of these things are true for the descent to soul. It's not a theft because what you're discovering is who you were born to be. That's not theft. And it's, um, and this is going to be sound kind of harsh to Campbell fans. And I, I still am a Campbell fan. Um, it still kind of feels harsh to say it, but um, if you read uh, his book, um, Hero with a Thousand Faces carefully, you'll see that he basically had adopted uh, a Freudian perspective. And, um, and there's a lot of misogyny in his interpretations, which is consistent with being Freudian. And he had this, ended up having this kind of upper world uh, interpretation that the hero's journey results in a union with, emergence with the, the divine. Uh, whereas the descent to soul is not a going up, it's going down. And it's not emerging with the divine. It is a discovery of the of our unique ecological niche, which is to say our soul. Um, so it's a very different kind of thing. And last I'll mention that a um, couple of things actually. There's a, in my model, there's as I've mentioned, there's five phases in the hero's journey. There's um, three phases. And perhaps one of the most important, maybe the most important phase in some ways of the descent of soul is that metamorphosis phase where the ego is actually shape-shifted. And there's nothing like that in Campbell's model, which kind of makes sense because if, if he was using a rites of passage model, there isn't a shape-shifting of the ego in rites of passage. It's more of a change in social status. So there's lots more to say about it, but that maybe gives our listeners a mm -hmm. glimpse. What gets in the way of people participating in this in this journey in this um, reaching the cocoon? Um, we get stuck in early adolescence. That's kind of the headline. Um, what does that mean? Um, the task of early the developmental task of early adolescence is to develop a social persona that is authentic and also fully accepted by at least one peer group and. That's challenging in any society, but in contemporary egocentric cultures, it's really challenging because we put such an emphasis on conformity and looking good that um, most people in early adolescence, regardless of their age, are working on the social acceptance part of that task. And Authenticity, which is the other half, becomes less important to them because we have such a deep longing to belong. And remember, part of the problem in that 
in feeling deeply that we belong is because we don't feel we belong to the more than human world. We don't know that, mm. but that's that restlessness at the very core of our psyches because we've grown up in a society that is separated or exiled from the larger natural world. It's also because most people haven't done great in the tasks of the first two stages, those are the stages of childhood, um, we end up in early adolescence with difficulty, really even, even if we want to do it, of discovering who we are, our own authenticity. We have a hard time feeling our feelings and knowing what to do with them, and knowing that every feeling is sacred. There's no such thing as a toxic emotion. Um, that goes against the grain of contemporary psychology, like many of the aspects of our models at Animus. Our own value systems, we have trouble developing them and knowing in a deep way where we stand and where we draw the line. So authenticity is just really difficult to achieve. And for many, large percentage, more than half of contemporary people. So we get stuck in early adolescence. And if we haven't gone through ecological awakening, we're all the more stuck. Um, and that's why we don't get to the cocoon, which is the fourth stage or late adolescence. And that's where the journey of soul initiation actually begins. So most virtually, as far as I know, every development, Western developmental model I've seen, models of human development, really only go through the first three stages. And they don't speak of anything beyond early adolescence. It makes me think of the particular challenge that uh, a lot of men face in the in the cultural time. This moment uh, seems to be those elements of of yeah the feeling feelings you know feeling the fullness of feelings and the 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 gift and the value of of the emotional landscape um, as well as um, authenticity yeah within a peer group which often you know depending on you know which group but often men do face I feel a sort of uh, a, a limit of depth. You know, I hear this from from a lot of men who will say, "Well, you know, I I got man friends, but we don't know how to go deep. Mm -hmm. You know, we just kind of we just kind of hover, yeah. you know, um, in the kind of uh, uh, upper upper realms." And so, yeah, I'm curious for what have you noticed as well, like the particular challenges men face, you know, in this stage, because often there is a you know challenge that men face too of this sense of they, this prolonged adolescence that can manifest as. I mean, a lot of, you know, dysfunction uh, in relationships, you know, in, in positions of power, yes. you know, and, uh, and all the rest. Yeah, yeah this is uh, more true of men in our culture than it is of women for a variety of reasons. Maybe most of our listeners could, could you know, complete that thought about why. But uh, yes, it's true that most men in our culture have a hard time accessing our emotions and knowing how to assimilate them and act on them and honor them. And again, it has to do with how we're raised and along themes of, you know, it's our job to get stuff done and emotions just get in the way. And besides our emotions are really what are for women. And uh, we won't look manly if we are having emotions and you know, everyone in the contemporary men's movement knows that those are all falsehoods and we've been working on developing our capacity to experience and assimilate and, and act on our emotions in a good way um, but maybe there's a larger piece here that might be useful to our listeners 
It has to do with the, what I call the four facets of wholeness, which are described in detail in my book, Wild Mind. And the idea is that each of us is born, each person is born with four innate bundles of resources, of natural human resources. Uh, And in order to access them and use them and act on them, we need to cultivate those basic capacities. And a healthy culture helps every child cultivate all four of those facets. In a contemporary world, virtually in most cases, none of those four facets uh, receive a whole lot of supportive cultivation. And there's two that are especially neglected and especially neglected for boys. And those two, again, the, I use the template of the four cardinal directions. Um, so just briefly, the, these are the two that are most suppressed in contemporary culture are the West and South facets. And um, I'm mainly going to focus here on the South. The South facet, I call the wild indigenous one. And it's the part of ourselves that that is very somatically oriented, that feels our kinship with everything else on the planet and uh, is somatically oriented and loves the experience of every single emotion and knows what to do with emotions. This is the South facet. And briefly, the West facet is our is oriented towards our deep imagination. Sometimes we call it the muse or the, or the magician or even the guide to soul. It's a part of us that will guide us on the journey to soul. And these two facets are most suppressed in the contemporary, most contemporary societies because, among other things, they're considered the feminine ones. And um, an underdeveloped man thinks of himself as masculine, which in his mind would be not feminine. And so not emotions, not imagination, um, not the muse, not the body, not our kinship with everything. So these two facets, the South and the West, which every human has equally as capacities, are projected by immature men onto women. It's not me, it's women. And that, that's, one, that's one, how, one way that we separate ourselves off from that, from our, our full humanness. So for me, I'm not convinced there are significant differences between uh, the psyches of people in male bodies and the psyches of people in female bodies. Let me take that back a little bit. There are significant differences in our culture but they're culturally uh, instituted differences. They're not, they're not true to our, what our, the human psyche really is. Um, and we could discuss whether biologically there are differences uh, in our psyches and maybe, but the four facets of wholeness are equally true for uh, male-bodied and female-bodied and androgynous bodied and so forth, humans. Two things come to mind in, in that. And one is, you know, I have my friend uh, sort of hovering at my shoulder here who he, he often, when we, we speak about, you know, masculine or, or men's concerns uh, or experiences, he always, you know, implores me to say, okay, well, just be a little more specific with what kind of man we're talking about because he himself is gay and identifies you know, more as queer and that sometimes the experiences are that are put forth 
they they maybe are more relevant uh depending on who who's speaking about what you know two men that are more let's say heterosexual men or cis men uh in this culture of which i would consider myself in that realm so you know when we talk about the suppression of emotions and all that too i do feel you know he might say well you know he's got good access to his emotions and maybe others that don't fit and so yeah i just wanted to name that to the listener as well that um I also that the experience for those people that identify that way, you know, certainly there's an expectation, I think, of, you know, still be a man or whatever it is, you know, the culture puts forth. Um, but that sort of maybe internally, the experiences of these aspects can be different. Um, so I just wanted to say that. Yes. But I think the other piece, too, that struck me was um, actually linking it to the mythopoetic men's movement, um, you know, largely sort of kickstarted by Bly and, um, of course, the book Iron John. And I think one of the big sort of, I don't know, uh, blooms of, of interest in that book really brought forth this sense of the wild man, which um, um, you might remember. Yes. Um, and and how, you know, I, I when you, I heard the wild, wild indigenous one, you know, again, I sort of felt this connection to the wild man. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, often the, at least maybe for that generation, accessing the wild man often seemed to take a bit more of a, a bit more of an aggressive, you know, big energy, uh, foot stomping, you know, drum beating kind of thing. And, and certainly perhaps that's in there. But then I, I hear more in what you're saying, even if I think about what Bly, how he's, you know, extrapolated on that idea, you know, he would say, I think it much more to something maybe mythically is the green man you know, or, or pan, like the one that is connected to the rhythms of the forest and that is connected to, you know, it's, it's the sense and the smells in the relation to life. And so I actually feel maybe in its, in its deeper root, I, a link to what you're saying here about this sort of wild indigenous one. Uh, yes. In fact, green man is one of the images I, I use for the wild indigenous one, the kind of masculine uh, male bodied version of the wild indigenous one. Yeah, it's sort of like as we, um, as we men are beginning, you know, over the last few decades in, in our personal work, um, cultivating our our humanness, and we we go through phases. And uh, if our wild indigenous one has been kind of locked up for a long time, when it first comes out, it might be somewhat childish, the way it, it shows up with the foot stomping and so forth, and um, but the, as we say yes to it, 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 that part of us matures, and which is to say we're cultivating that facet increasingly. And uh, it becomes more about um, this multi-species kinship and this um, more subtle and nuanced uh, celebration of our emotions. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. And so on the other side of this journey of soul initiation, you, as you spoke earlier in the podcast, the, there was this uh, awakening into, uh, I, I, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was like visionary artisan. Of, cultural evolution. Um, yep. Of cultural evolution. Yeah. And I, and I really like this uh, phrase you used in the book, which was actually describing um, that function or that role, which um, was to become a, a conscious participant in, in evolution itself. Yes. I think that's the way I understood it to be. Yeah, and I'd love for you to speak a little more on that. Yeah. Um, when we discover our unique ecological niche and we're shape-shifted or metamorphosed, our ego is shape-shifted to become an agent for that niche, that sole purpose. Um, whatever we end up doing, 
is a way of um, cooperating with the evolutionary impulse. Um, because if, again, if you think about it, if, if you will adopt my uh, definition for at least a, a moment of soul as a unique ecological niche, it, it's saying that, and soul is something we're born with or as, we're born to have that place in the world. Um, and who gives birth to us? You might say, you know, a planet, Gaia, or a mystery, or a soul gives birth to us. And it doesn't do it randomly. It gives birth to beings who can take some kind of next step, and not just the sustaining of life, but the enhancing of life. Because that's the way I understand, and the way, you know, ecologists and biologists understand life on this planet. Everything is designed to take the next step of the unfolding story of this planet or life in this corner of the cosmos. As we all know too well, that at this time on the planet, our species is not only not life-sustaining, it's life-destroying. We're destroying life because we, we haven't come into our, our own depths or uh, our own souls. And often... Um, in contemporary progressive circles, we'll say that the goal is to develop societies that are life-sustaining. But that's not what life's about. Life is not su about sustaining life. It's always about further complexity and diversification and so on. If, if life was about life-sustaining, then we'd still all be single-cell bacteria as we were, mm -hmm. you know, two or three billion years ago. Um, but we're constantly, everything is constantly evolving and everything is meant to be life enhancing. So it's true for humans as a species, but maybe we're, we're kind of young as a species and we're just still discovering how to be human. And if we don't discover, if we don't make some, some significant strides soon, the story is going to be over for not just all the other millions of species that are going extinct at our hands, but uh, for ourselves as well. Okay, so back to this idea that each of us is born with a particular gift to bring to the world, a particular function or a particular role to take in the larger earth community. Um, that makes us, like everything else on the planet, to be at the cutting edge of evolution, of the continuation and unfolding of the story. Um, and by the way, that people often ask me, because everybody asks everybody, what gives you hope? Do you have any hope at all? What gives you hope? And my answer is um, the fact that we are ensouled is what gives me hope. It, that hope comes from the soul. It comes from the fact that I can be absolutely confident that every human was born with the capacity to um, help our species and our planet take its next evolutionary step at this point. But we have to go through the journey of soul initiation in order to do that. And that's simply becoming a, an adult. You know, two things come to mind. One is, you know, what's, what's the difference between someone who may think that they're supporting evolution, right? And say, oh yeah, this is totally my niche. And I know that, you know, and uh, I'm clearly doing, you know, I'm trying, I'm thinking of other language that might have maybe used in a similar way. Um, of, you know, I'm doing God's work here, you know, which often gets trotted out when certain, let's say, politicians, you know, are doing certain things and or certain wars are started, you know, and I'm not saying that that's, you know, the unique evolutionary edge saying, yeah, you know, yes to that. But I'm just curious, how does one differentiate yeah. 
uh, between uh, you know that that line of connection to their particular niche, and then one maybe that's still serving uh, an egoic element. So yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it's the difference between discovery and invention. So the uh, adolescent ego who sees, I'll use the male pronoun, he sees himself as an evolutionary, would say that, uh, would figure out what he could do using his superior strategic mind. Um, he will figure out how he can uh, cooperate with evolution and support it and come up with some grand project or even a humble project to be able to do that. But for someone who's gone through the soul initiation process, which I believe is a version of it, by the way, in, in every healthy culture, there's just not too many healthy cultures left. Mm. Um, but when we go through the soul initiation process, we discover, we don't invent, we discover the place we were born to take. And it's like we're told. It's like we are more in some ways in the passive recipient seat. We are, we are the adolescent ego is the raw material that gets shaped by something deeper and bigger, which you can call mystery or soul, as opposed to the adolescent ego, which is an agent for itself and figures out on its own using the strategic mind, this is what I'm going to do. Very, very different. Mm. Hmm. It makes me think too of the the sense of, I don't know, stories of rock stars or others who have achieved, you know, some some lofty role or status or or wealth, and yet are deeply hollow inside, you know, are deeply feeling a sense of disconnection. And so for me, it feels like perhaps that could also be a healthy barometer for, for someone, you know, to say, uh, you know, although they might have success in terms of the worldly, you know, status or worldly positions, I mean, is that their sense, is, is there that sense of aliveness, you know, true aliveness? Is it that sense of, of purpose, uh, sort of, uh, of receiving, you know, without any kind of, uh, invention. Oh, this is mine to do. Like I feel like that seems to be something like a qualitative difference that one would find if they were truly connected to to their soul's uh, to their soul's expression. Yeah, they would. Um, uh, initiated person feels both blessed and burdened by the role that they were born to take in this life. It, the ego always feels for the soul initiated person. The ego feels. Um, I, I couldn't do this. This is too big for me. This, this is a terrible burden that I've been given. And also a realization that the greatest joy and fulfillment of my life will come through my best efforts at, in embodying this. So, yeah, we just see too much around us. You know, the so-called celebrities are um, people who've, who've won the sweepstakes of social acceptance and have compl- and often too often have completely lost the uh, psycho spiritual requirement and opportunity to discover who they really are, and even on a personality level, even on the level of emotions and values and so on. And, and once they do that, then mystery will toss them over into the cocoon. Mm. Hmm. The other thing that comes to mind is a conversation I actually had with a fellow. He's an indigenous author, Tyson Young Caporta. And you might have seen his book, Sand Talk, um, which is... I've got it and I haven't cracked it yet, but I just got it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's definitely making the rounds of uh, some real, you know, impact, I feel. And uh, I've read some of it now, but I've also, you know, we had the interview a little while ago. 
But what's sticking out with me is, you know, we were talking about not necessarily using the same soul language, but he was saying how I think as a as a response to the Western sense of the individual and the individual's uniqueness um, at the expense of you know relationship, let's say um, that he he was sort of saying, you know, from a from at least his indigenous perspective, that the the in, in individual actually doesn't have a lot there. Like, and I'm not saying he was also saying that, you know it's a blank slate, but I think he was just saying that so much of it, of course, is filled by. I mean, the cultural cauldron and, and conditioning that they grew up in. And it seemed to me, there was a clear sense, though, and I've, I've gotten this, I feel, from other Indigenous conversations, that there is almost this bifurcation, I feel, of almost like an identity based on a collective, uh, like their people's sense of identity in relation to the village, let's say, or to their people. And then the Western, which has its own conception of individualism, um, which can be warped into kind of like what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the consumerist or the maybe egocentric identity. And and I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to figure them out, t- you know, together because I feel like there is a relation between them. It's, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they do feel different. And so I wonder again, like you're very precise in a lot of your definitions. And you've also said that, you know, in the book, the path that you found with this, you know, journey of the soul initiation doesn't feel as, as you know, described and as you've done it in other, you know, indigenous uh, ways. And I hear you even say you weren't saying one's better than the other either, but it, they seem distinct. So I guess my question to you, though, is what is it about the need to almost, almost like go even further with the Western individual mindset? Because it's like we can't go back to like a village identity, it feels like, because it's just it's so challenging, you know, to try to you know, re reconjure the village for those peoples that have haven't you know lost it for so long, um, and it's almost like. And I'm I'm wondering, is it to go even further as individuals to be able to, be you know, become adults because it takes initiated adults to build village again. You know, it's something like that. I feel, and I would love to hear your take on things if that's even at all clear. Yeah, I don't know if I entirely get it, but um, at least I'll get started, and maybe you can um, help steer me here. So in the egocentric contemporary world, we, what we understand to be an individual is what I've been calling a, not just an early adolescent, but an egocentric early adolescent. And healthy early adolescence is not egocentric. Like the egocentric, one of the egocentric forms of early adolescence I call conforming and rebelling. Mm. Everybody's conforming and rebelling. Um, but the healthy one is the oasis where we're in relationship to not just humans, but the other, other than human in a, a good way. So let's see, I'm trying to focus in on your question. Oh, so individualism in the contemporary world, it, it really is a kind of selfish thing. I'm up for number one, me. But uh, the, the development of individuality or what Carl Jung called individuation is a different kind of thing because with individuation, what a person is doing is finding their unique place in the greater web and they're serving the web. It's all about serving the whole and finding my, the unique gift that I can bring to uh, gift life with. And so it's not selfish at all. Um, It's, it's, it's even better than altruistic. It's, it's serving the whole. But then there's an, a, maybe another strand of your question. I'm not sure, but here's an idea that has been troubling my waters for quite some while in a good way. And that is that 
okay, if everything on the planet is evolving, well, even that would imply, at least make possible, that even the human species has been evolving. Even over the last 5,000 years, when our cultures have been decaying, at least on a psycho-spiritual dimension, but perhaps we're still evolving anyways. And one of the signs of evolution that I see is this stage of human development that we, we call adolescence. Um, I was surprised to learn that the word itself, adolescence, wasn't coined until the first decade of the 20th century. It was right around 1900 by a guy named Stanley Hall, who was the first American to get a PhD in psychology. And um, there's good reason to believe that adolescence has been a stage of human development that has been just showing up in the scene relatively recently in the last, who knows, how many hundreds of years. And we're just starting to learn what it's for. And um, uh, boy, so much can be said about that. But my partner, Janine Marie Haugen, her perspective on it is that adolescence, if it's fully embraced, which we haven't done yet, but if it is fully embraced, it's an opportunity to develop the human imagination more fully than we could without uh, this further differentiated stage of adolescence. And that our, the human imagination is perhaps our greatest gift as a species, because as Janine likes to say, we have a forward seeing imagination. We can see potential futures and maybe in a way that most other species can't. Every species has a unique ecological niche. We could talk about, we'll probably run out of time today, but we can talk about what, you know, what are the speculations about the unique niche of the, the human. But also within each species, each individual has a somewhat unique niche. And as far as we can tell, that's more true for humans than it is for any other species. That there's more, there's different ways, there's so many more different ways of being human than there are different ways of being a chimpanzee or a wolf or a butterfly or et cetera. Um, and, and so our individuality, individuality is greater. And that could be an evolutionary trend that we are just beginning to learn how to take advantage of, which is to say how to use it to serve the world more fully. Well, it's interesting to me then, because I, you know, if I do look out at the world and I see, like you said, if, if so few reach the stage of, of, of making it to the cocoon and then, you know, going through the process and coming out and fulfilling their ecological niche, that means a lot of people are dying, never having done that, I think, yeah. if I'm doing the math yes. right. Yeah. Totally, and therefore, yeah. therefore, I just have this kind of question of, so does this mean a kind of exponential stacking up of, you know, spirit work that is not being done? Um, yes. or, or, yeah, yeah. or does it get kind of composted back into possibilities of when they come around again, uh, Buddhist style? You know, I'm just curious, yeah. you know, you must have thought about that, yeah. Um, good questions. I, I just think of, you know, we, we often say that we're in a time of great crisis and upheaval, and I agree, but I think of it as, started about 5,000 years ago. Um, it's, it's been this great initiatory journey. And you know, it's like the parallel is the individual human initiatory journey. Uh, it's um, potentially life-threatening. You know, at our institute, Animus Valley Institute, we haven't had anybody die during while we were guiding them. 
But we know from stories from nature-based indigenous cultures that some of the young people don't physically survive the initiatory journey. So the way I've come to think of it is every planet that's evolved life in the universe, and the, you know, apparently there's billions and billions and billions of such planets, as the life forms develop on that planet and there becomes one or more species that has this this odd capacity for conscious self-awareness like we do, which is say to have egos, every such planet comes to a crisis point where it, the planet itself will survive its initiatory journey or it won't. Mm. And we don't know if which category earths will end up being, being, we might not survive this initiation process. And it's up to us as a species, whether we do or not, um, and the crisis we're in now, I believe, is inevitable for any planet with a species with our, our kind of consciousness. It's just, it, you can't avoid it. Um, and that's, that's the best I can say that whether we'll get through or not, I don't know. But I'm convinced that in the long term, something that I call the journey of soul initiation is absolutely essential to the organic development of healthy cultures but it's not the most important urgent thing in the short term that um, as Joanna Macy points out that if we don't succeed at saving enough life right now, uh, stopping this six mass extinction, which is even a much more serious problem than climate change, then we won't have the luxury of developing the journey of soul initiation as a core piece of, of, of all societies going forward. We have this more urgent business right now of saving life. That's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, in my mind, I would have thought that it's it's like the need to go through the journey means that one can then be clear about what how they serve in that sense. And and I hear you saying, you know, actually, there's this more direct and urgent need to, to I mean, I, in, in Joanna Macy's um, quadrants, I believe, if, if it's the three pillars of the great turning, I think she's spoken to. Um, three dimensions, three yes. dimensions, yeah. And I understand one is is direct action, which yes. is yes, you know, in standing in the way of the bulldozer and you know all that yes. stuff, uh, as well as consciousness, as well as new systems. Um, and I hear that the 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 call you're saying too that perhaps the 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 absolute stopping of these you know massive pipelines going in and you know all these things that are um, clearly you know sort of insane in so many levels, but then that may provide the the ability the time to then go on. You know, soul initiations, or, or of course, you know, I'm sure they happen in tandem, in some ways too. Um, yes, but I appreciated that that precision. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, they do happen in tandem, and there are soul initiated individuals, many of whose stories are told in my new book. And in each case, you'll see that they're doing these very, really visionary um, actions and making a big difference in terms of shifting our society. And um, Joanna Macy being one of the stories I tell in this book. Um, so yeah, it's not like we, we've got to um, do our direct action before we can develop ourselves as individuals and become visionary artisans of cultural evolution that we're yeah, working on both fronts. Mm-hmm. But the most urgent thing, of course, is to keep from going extinct, basically. Well, well maybe then just as we end the conversation, you know, I'd love to, 
maybe ask just a little bit about, you know, for the listener who's going like, wow, <laughs> you know, I hope they're, they're going, wow, I am. But I would love to hear what, what might they, how, where might they turn, you know, in this moment? Because um, I know you do have extensive maps. You do have, you know, a lot of recognition of the patterns and the ways in which, you know, these, these journeys can, can, can awaken. But what might you say to the listener as well in their own lives, you know, other than read the book, which, which you know, you go into this in extensive mm-hmm. detail. Um, yep. But to say, you know, where, yeah, where to turn in this time to begin that orientation to, you know, where are they called to be and, and why and how? Yeah, when it comes to um, your personal development, you know, we have all these um, therapeutic systems in the world now and for and systems for psychological development and systems for spiritual development. Um, and some people might feel, oh, boy, I just can't do one more thing. And But I want to encourage the listeners by saying, like, developing a personal wholeness is one reason it's it's actually easier than you might think is because we're all born with the basic capacities to do it. It's not making stuff up. It's not applying something to ourselves that isn't already there. Um, and the same with the journey of soul initiation and the descent to soul, that piece of it. Um, the You might say there's these psychic structures that already exist in us that are ready uh, to support us in, in these unfoldings. So that, you know, unlike a lot of Eastern spiritualities where we tend to think, well, okay, that'll be the rest of my life. I'll be engaged in this meditation practice and so forth. And maybe towards the end, maybe I'll have some Satori experience and so on. And and maybe I I need to go to the the monastery, the ashram and commit myself fully to it. That, That may or may not be true, but the journey of soul initiation is actually relatively easy compared to that. Um, it, it, uh, from, I think with guidance, most people get through it in four or five years, sometimes less, sometimes a little more, and it doesn't have to take all of your time. Um, that, in a sense, what we've been doing at Animus Valley Institute is discovering something that has always been there. It's, it's been there at the core of our own cultures. If you go far enough back when we still had some sense of some degree of indigeneity and, um, We've at Animus, we've essentially been discovering how to do this in a contemporary Western nature-based way by paying very careful attention to the experiences that people have with certain uh, basic practices that support this. So um, I'm just trying to be encouraging that this journey of wholeness, including the journey of soul initiation, as you'll see if you take a look at the book, that the the actual practices won't sound that foreign and hopefully they'll make sense to you like, Oh yeah, these kind of practices could result in, in this kind of development. Hmm. Well, Bill, and again, thank you for your time in our conversation today on this uh, sunny day. My pleasure. Ian. thank you so much for the invitation and the great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the mythic masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode on your social media. Also, you're invited to join the Mythic Masculine Network, a growing community of artists, activists, poets, parents, and lovers of mythology, ritual, and wonder. We're co-creating the emergence of a culture of belonging, oriented around tending the masculine soul. It's a beautiful, intimate platform, 
and I'd love to have you connected. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash network to learn more.